and it's interesting um, because you 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 listen to them speak and you listen to them um, pretty much attack you know anybody who is speaking up for Kaepernick and you have to think what is your ultimate reason for this like what is your your goal yes you're going to be patted on the head by the executives yes you're going to move up and yes you're going to gain ratings and you're going to gain certain demographics of fans who love seeing a black face echo what what you know they believe but are you really happy with that welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave zyron this week we have 10-year nba veteran author of the forthcoming book we matter athletes and activism and my co-host on the radio show the collision Atan thomas we are also talking to andy schwartz an antitrust economist who has concocted a radical plan to change the entire college sports industrial complex but first before Atan thomas comes on the line I want to explain a little bit about what happened just earlier this week in New York City. And I want to explain it by talking a little bit about some history. In 1967, Muhammad Ali could not find work as a boxer. It was, of course, because of his politics. In response to this, his fans and allies and friends were not merely disappointed or discouraged. They demonstrated in rallies that spanned the globe from Western Europe to the Middle East to El Paso, Texas. That's the only time I could find, as a quasi-amateur sports historian, of an instance where fans actually protested the exclusion and blackballing of an athlete on political grounds. Until now. In 2017, Colin Kaepernick has, as of this writing, not been able to find work in the National Football League, although perhaps by the time you hear this, he will have signed with the Seattle Seahawks. Even though the Super Bowl quarterback is coming off a bounce-back season where he threw 16 TDs and four picks, even though his coaches swear by his character and work ethic, and even though he has made clear that he is not asking for a big contract or a starting job, he has been subject to a baldly obvious political blackballing. His great sin was, of course, to take his politics to the field, kneeling during the national anthem to protest racist police violence. As with Ali, people are inspired not so much by his play, but by his politics, and they have chosen to speak out. On Wednesday, more than 60 people rallied at the National Football League's Posh Park Avenue offices to protest his pariah status. Not surprisingly, having such a protest was mocked on social media, people laughing about the idea that anyone would demonstrate for a football player's job. But to the people present at this protest, People like William Bell, the father of Sean Bell, who was killed by police the night before his wedding a decade ago. This had nothing to do with sports. Also present were anti-police brutality activists, students who attended Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camps, and the person we have on the line right now, Etan Thomas. Etan, uh, first of all, thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. really do appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks for having me. No, so if you could paint a picture for us um, about the Kaepernick rally, what it looked like, who was there, the spirit of the thing, uh, that would be really helpful. And then I really do want to know why you felt like it was so important for you to be there. I mean, it was important for me to be there, first of all, just because I really support um, Kaepernick and everything that he is about and everything that he stands for. 
um, I'm, I'm doing this, this book right now called We Matter, um, Athletes and Activism that we are doing <laughs> together. And, um, you know, I'm interviewing a lot of different people. And it's interesting when you hear all the different players and all the different athletes, even from the past to the present, they're really talking about Kaepernick and they really reference Kaepernick in particular. And, you know, what... what wait, wait, so that's an important point. I want to underline that. So you're talking to athletes going back 50 years and... The, largely, many of them are using Colin Kaepernick as a point of reference when they speak about why athlete activism matters. Oh, no question. I mean, Kareem talked about it. Uh, John Carlos, Mahmoud Abdul-Aruf, I could, I could keep going. Bill Russell, they all reference Kaepernick. And he's really putting himself in a place where, you know, they people might not see it right now because usually when you're living in the present, um, you don't see the gravity of what somebody has done. But 20, 30, 40 years from now, people will be talking about Kaepernick in the, in the, in the same tone um, and mention them in the same breath as the athletes and the activist athletes that they mention when they talk about, you know, Muhammad Ali and they talk about Bill Russell and Kareem. But he'll be the modern day uh, reference for them because what he did is really, I mean, the, the, just, just for the fact of, you know, the, the amount of criticism that he took, the, the, the power and the, the strength and the courage for the stance that he took and and the amount of where it appears is right now that he is being blackballed um, for that stance. I mean, you know, the way that he articulated his reasons for this stance, the reason why the reason how they they tried to twist and mis, misconstrue and misreport his stance, even though he explained specifically what his reasons were, you know, all of that. Um, together really puts him on a, an entire different level. I think that maybe even ex- may exceed his own personal, um, you know, thoughts and maybe his, his, you know, of course he didn't think of it like that and I'm sure he doesn't, but you know, people are watching and people have, are really having a tremendous amount of respect for him. So back to your original question, why I chose to, to go to the, to the rally and to be able to speak is because just really to be able to show my support, you know, when an athlete has the moral courage to be able to take a stance the way that Colin Kaepernick has, um, in the face of all the criticism and all everything that's, that he knew was going to be a part of him taking that stance, you have to have people that come out there and support him. I mean, you have different different guys like, you know, of course, Stephen A. Smith and Jason Whitlock and all those people of the world. And there's a long list of people who um, immediately tried to demonize him. And now they're almost making fun of him for taking the stance and say, see, that's why you're not, you know, getting a job right now. And they're almost ridiculing him. And what it does is it sends such a message, you know, to, to athletes after him. And that, that's one of the reasons why I really, I really want him to be um, signed by an NFL team. Be, number one, because he deserves it. Because you see all these different athletes, all these different, you know, quarterbacks. And, you know, I don't want to mention any of them by name. No, you know what I mean? But they are being signed and they are of less caliber statistically than Colin Kaepernick. I'll say it like that. You know what I mean? And, and you see that happening and it's just not fair. You know what I mean? There's no other reason that you can give of why he's not being signed and all of these other guys are being signed before him. So that's one reason, right? But the, the, the even bigger reason that's even bigger than Kaepernick is because you know, by if him not being signed, it sends a message to all under other athletes that if you do fall out of line, this will happen to you. And one of the things that I'm doing with this book is I'm encouraging athletes 
to use their voice. And I, I, I spoke to, like, you know, Mark Cuban, who, who is the CEO of the Mavericks, and, you know, Steve Kerr, who is, is the, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, and Ted Leosis, who is the CEO of the Wizards. And I talked to him specifically about athletes speaking out and, you know, quelling that notion that people will be punished if they speak out. And all of them said, no, they, no, they definitely, uh, you know, uh, appreciate and value athletes' opinions. So I wanted to squash that notion. But what this does here, and it is interesting because one of the things when I interviewed John Carlos, um, Dr. John Carlos talked about when in the 68 Olympics, they tried to do this same thing with them by put this notion out that, that they were stripped of their medals. Now, even while I was talking to them, I thought that as well. I said, I thought that you were stripped of your medals. I thought that they said, you know, he said that's what they put out to the media in an effort to specifically show that if any other Olympians fall out of line, this too will happen to you. He said, but we weren't stripped of our medals. They said, that's not what happened. And I- yeah, John Carlos has this thing which he calls the three big lies about what took place, which people take as common sense. The first, stripping of the medals. The second, this idea that they were kicked out of Mexico City for their protest, which people say is just like, yeah, that happened. They were kicked out of Mexico City. Not true at all. And the third great lie is that it was a quote-unquote black power salute. When, as he says to me time and again, like we were trying to say power to all oppressed peoples. It was a global message. And when they say black power salute, it's actually an effort to segregate the message so people across the world who are oppressed couldn't draw strength from it. Well, that's what they do, though. You know what I mean? The media is very, they, they, they do it very, very intentionally. And that gets, yeah, and that gets to my next question for you. I still want you to sort of lay out like who was there, the spirit of the rally or whatnot, but you just said what you said, and it really makes me, about basically media gatekeepers, and it really wants to make you ask this. I read a transcript and watched your speech, your talk, at the rally itself, I was just so impressed, Aton, with how you uh, brought it at the Kaepernick rally. And one thing you did is you, you name-checked Stephen A. Smith and Jason Whitlock. I mean, what role do you think these extremely high-profile black sports pundits, what role do they play as gatekeepers and as communicators of political athletes, particularly black political athletes, particularly people like Colin Kaepernick who are challenging the status quo. What is the role of people like Stephen A. and Jason Whitlock? Well, you know, Malcolm X said um, that the, the media is the most powerful entity on earth and they have the power to, you know, influence the minds of the masses, you know, and that's exactly what they have the power to do. And it's interesting um because you, you, you listen to them speak and you listen to them um, pretty much attack, you know, anybody who is speaking up for Kaepernick. And you have to think, what is your ultimate reason for this? Like, what is your your goal? Yes, you're going to be patted on the head by the executives. Yes, you're going to move up and yes, you're going to gain ratings and you're going to gain certain demographics of fans who love seeing a black face echo what what, you know, they believe. But are you really happy with that? And I and I always question myself with this. And I and I asked it to different people who who I interviewed also for the book. And um, it, it's 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 always a really interesting, you know, because you, you see them being rewarded for that. 
You know what I mean? You see Jason Whitlock have his own platform, and this has kind of been his stick for a while. Whenever a, a, um, a topic comes up that is a, a topic that has to deal with the black community, he takes the opposite um, perspective, and, and he starts speaking for the opposite role. You see Stephen A. a. Smith many times look into the camera say, look, I don't care what the black community thinks. This is what I think. And he echoes the sentiments of Fox News. And it's being it has to be done intentionally. Do you know what I mean? But I always question is if they really feel this way. Honest question. Does does it make it? I mean, and, and I'm not even sure what how I would answer this. So I'm curious how you would answer this. Does it make a difference to you if this is really how they feel versus this is really how they feel they can get paid? Does it matter to you or do you think the end result is the same and you could care less what their motivations are? It definitely matters because then it's two it's for two different reasons. It's like it's like when you speak to a rapper and you speak to him and he's all extra intelligent. You have this intelligent and I've and I've experienced this in-depth conversation with him. And then you go and you look at his, at his video and he and he becomes a caricature. And then you hear him speak and you're like, wait a minute, he doesn't even sound like that. That's not even how he speaks. So it's like you're putting on a black face in order to entertain the masses, in order to move up through society and gain the riches and things of like that that you gain. Um, and I asked, I asked um, uh, Dr. Harry Edwards about this because we were talking about OJ. And, 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 and the reason why, and this is how this is all ties in, I believe that Jason Whitlock and Stephen A. Smith in many ways don't even believe the things that they're actually saying, but they know that that's what the public wants to hear. And when I say the public, like I mean mainstream America public wants to hear. And they know that that's what's going to, to you know, so, so what I'm saying is, in many ways, it's even worse. Do you know what I mean? Because you know better. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're doing it for a specific reason. It, to, in my opinion, it's even worse. So, 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 but the reason why it's so dangerous now is because then you'll have people like Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly reference Stephen A. Smith. And, and, and their things on Fox, on Fox News, and I've heard it. I've heard them reference Charles Barkley. I've heard them, and that's why it's like, when, when you have somebody like Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly reference what you say, you have to start checking yourself. You know what I mean? But it's like they're, it's like you go back to that movie um, Bamboozled, and you know, you remember at the end when Savion Glover was looking at himself in the mirror, and he just couldn't do it anymore. And then he took all of the, the black face off and then he went out there and started and performed as himself and nobody wanted to hear it. You know what I mean? You back, Michael Rappaport came down. He said, stop dancing, stop dancing. This is not what we want. You know what I mean? And they kicked him out. The thing is that Stephen A. Smith, as, as high as he is right now, or on ESPN's list, he might be one of the top drawers. Effectively the face of ESPN at this point. Right. If he ended his stick... Right. I think he would get the bamboozled Savion Glover treatment because it's like he's there for a reason. But he knows that. But then also, I think he's too intelligent for that. I honestly think he knows better, but he's doing it for a reason. And to me, that makes it even worse. Wow. Because because it's performative uh, as opposed to genuine. No. And that, that that's a, actually a very profound point you just made in referencing bamboozled. I, I absolutely I see it, man. I see it. So take us to the rally now, because I am curious about, you know, you took the time to be there. Uh, what did you think about who was at this thing? Who was there? What was the mood like? Hell, what was it like to be on Park Avenue doing a protest like this and the passerbys and whatnot? What was that like? 
It was really interesting, I got to say, you know, because we're right in front of the NFL headquarters. And, um, you know, I, I, I got pulled into it at first from from Emerald, um, Emerald Snipes, who is the daughter of, of Eric Gardner. And, you know, we're working on a lot of things together with the children of the movement where we're having different um victims of of police violence their children and we're starting a, a whole speaking tour speaking circuit with them that becomes really therapeutic for them so that's going to be powerful but she told me about it and she told me about um kevin livingston kevin element livingston and he was putting this together and he saw that i was going to be in new york um for a panel with the players tribune actually it, which was ironically talking to the media about why the the relationship between athletes and the media is so poor which was it's a whole different subject but that was such a very interesting panel like we could do a whole different talk about that so 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 we so I go to the I go to the uh, rally and it's it's right directly in front of the NFL headquarters. The NFL has certain people, you know, out there just kind of checking to see what is what's going on. The police are there, but they're not really, you know, confrontational or anything. They're just kind of sitting to the side. They barricade certain sections and put certain It's Park Avenue for goodness sakes, you know. <laughs> They got to be on their best behavior, <laughs> right? Hey, I mean, hey, hey, you always gotta. Well, you gotta, you gotta look at those things. I was with my brother, and you know, before we even walked up, he surveyed the whole scene, and he was like, "Okay, he's looking at the police. He sees them over there. He sees the NFL people over there in their suits. He sees the people over there. You know what I mean? The, the different people being interviewed. You have to survey the whole scene." And there was a certain section that they wanted us to stay in, and they wanted us to stay off of the NFL actual property park. So and and they were making that point very clear, you know what I mean? So so they they had to resection where we could stand, but everybody else they could stand over there. So the people who were actually speaking couldn't stand directly in front of the NFL headquarters. If that makes sense. So so they restructured everything and as we were speaking and the crowds were passing and saw the big there's a big truck um, or that was across the street, two big trucks that had Kaepernick's faces on it and stuff like that. They, everybody just kind of stopped and said, well, what's going on over here? You know what I mean? And it was interesting because, you know, you had people with signs. You had people with, you know, we support Kaepernick and different people in Kaepernick jerseys and things of that nature. And, you know, talking to some of the um, regular Park Avenue um, people that go by who weren't really a part of anything and them asking us questions it's interesting because you hear their perspective and they really didn't understand. <laughs> and I was like, well, what, what, what don't y'all understand? Cause sometimes I like to just listen to other people. And then they start spouting off all of these rumors that they hear. And it's like, Oh, but doesn't Kaepernick just only want to be a starter or doesn't Kaepernick only want this amount of money? But I was like, no, that's not factual. Where did you hear that? You know what I mean? They're like, we heard that on the news. I was like, well, just because you hear something on the news doesn't mean that it's factual. And that's the problem with the media, because they report rumors as if they are facts. This, these things that they put out. You know, there's a great example of that right now. I don't know if you've been following this, but this whole idea that Richard Sherman has incredible beef with Russell Wilson. And how, and it was like, it's reported like across the board as if it was fact with no named sources. And not just like in, on some blog either, but ESPN, the magazine, 3,000 words, all the rest of it. And you've got Mike, and I spoke to Michael Bennett about this too. And this was like the sort of private conversation where he would tell me if there was some truth to it. And he was like, what kind of bullshit is this? 
you know, like literally like, like what? Like what? I mean, they tease Russ. They do tease Russ because, you know, that defense is legion to boom and Russ is, you know, proper Gus, Russ proper Gus. But, but that's a huge difference between that and being like, we resent him and the coach plays favorites. That just does not exist. I mean, that and that, ironically, that was what we were saying uh, when we were at the panel with the Players' Tribune. We was talking to the media. We was like, that's one of the problems. Like, you want to know why guys don't like talking to y'all is because you sit there and it's almost like you make stuff up and you say anonymous sources and you write rumors as if they're factual. Okay, we're getting off topic, though. So you're at the rally Talk some more for me, man. So you're on Park Avenue. The police were chill because, you know, people walking there, their poodles were you know, in the background. And, and, and so but so who was out there? Were you impressed? I know about 60 people showed up, not including media. But real quick, like like how uh, how many media was there? And, um, and with the NFL people, what were they doing? Just sort of peeping you out? Did you know they were NFL for any reason? Did they try to talk to you? Uh, the people protesting were they good people people you liked and respected like give give us a sense please oh definitely all well all of the speakers i thought were great you know what i mean and and i you could you could definitely tell the people who were there to kind of survey everything like the nfl people you could just tell them you could just look at them and then tell you know what i mean and just like the nypd that were there you they're they're saying i mean of course they were in uniform but you could just you know, look, at they were kind of standing over there towards the area of the NYPD, all the NFL people. And they were just kind of watching and talking amongst themselves and talking to the NYPD people and saying things like that. And, you know, you saw that there's a lot of media uh, on the opposite side. Uh, it was, and it was interesting. That video that you told me, that was that was uh, put up by TMZ, right? Like, like I, yeah, I, I honestly did not expect TMZ to actually cover the, the rally. Maybe that's just me not knowing, but I, I didn't really expect yeah, as soon as I saw you on TMZ, I was like, please, may there not be a Kardashian involved. Like, uh-oh, right. <laughs> I'm, oh, you, no, no, he's like Kardashian. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, but but really, that because that's really what TMZ does. But the thing about it is we saw a lot of media there. You know, ESPN was there. Sporting News was there. Bleacher Report was there. We saw all the different things. Of course, you had the Village Voice there and other people. So there was a lot of media coverage there. And, you know, they were just kind of just asking why um, everybody's here to support Kaepernick. And a lot of the people who were there weren't necessarily football fans. You know what I mean? They weren't NFL fans, the people that were rallying. They were sitting there rallying because of it, because of the, the content of it. The reason because it was it was not right. It was, you know, talking about the injustice of, you know, when you heard them speaking, they're like, wait a minute. So all he did was speak out about the injustice of society and now he's being blackballed. That's all he did. So it's like they're repeating that over and over. And they're not even football fans, but they're like, no, we have to rally around this because, you know, when somebody in, in of his caliber speaks up for the injustice of the community, the community has to support them. And you, this, these are things that you heard them repeatedly say. So, I mean, I thought the overall, you know, I have to give a lot of lot, a lot of credit to uh, Kevin Livingston for putting it all together. And um, he wants to do more of them. Uh, that he actually told me that he wants to do something here in D.C. So there's going to be more of those to come. But I, I, I think it's I think it's really it was really productive. I thought it was great. Wow, uh, fantastic! That sounds really good. And there are a lot of young people there as well, right? People perhaps who who were part of the Know Your Rights camps of Kaepernick. 
Right, there were. Um, there, they, they, you saw them for the Know Your Rights uh, T-shirt song, so they were all there together. Um, then there was a, a big group of of young girls. They were had to be like either middle school or high school age, and they were all there together. Um, I mean, but it was it was well represented. Yeah, the people came out. Yeah. Wow. Well, Etan Thomas, I mean, this this is all extremely helpful. I think I got to say, working with you on this book, I mean, you're doing the heavy lifting. I'm just doing background editing. But this book that you're doing, We Matter, um, I think like getting, wow, if we could get Kaepernick to write the intro or, or even like an interview with him or, you know, worst case scenario, include the, you know, just a transcript of the six-minute interview I did with him at Know Your Rights last week. I mean, anything to get his voice in there would be a truly a beautiful thing. Oh, man, that would be fantastic. I definitely agree, and I think it will happen. I'll talk to some of his people. He just, you know, he's trying to see, you know, he had an interview with Seattle um, a day or two ago, and it's interesting because right when he's having an interview with Seattle, all of a sudden all of this stuff comes with this turmoil with Seattle. I don't really think that's a coincidence. And he talked about— Isn't that curious, though? Isn't that— Ah, it's very interesting, right? All of a sudden, right? Just out the blue. Now all this stuff comes out. Especially because, you know, it's generally centered around Richard Sherman, who, along with Michael Bennett, has been by far the most outspoken person speaking against the Kaepernick blackballing. So it immediately creates this perception of, well, if you bring Kaepernick in, there would be some sort of, you know, dissension in the locker room about who should start. And... There's so many li- – I, I wouldn't even – I mean I call that a circle of stupid because you don't know where to start. And it, it, it's unbelievable to me. It's just unbelievable to me. And it feel like – and you know, I, and you should tell me if you disagree on this because this is – you know, we, you and I both spend a lot of time thinking about media. I don't think it's that there's some kind of puppet master putting this stuff out like in some dark room like Montgomery Burns. I think it's just like the perception is so strong – to go after these outspoken athletes, it becomes almost a default position when you're pitching a story to an editor. That's just my my thoughts about that. What? Well, I think it's definitely done intentionally. And when, when you have the power of the pen and you know that you have the power to influence minds, you can use that power for good or evil. And unfortunately, a lot of, of writers are using it for evil. That, that's that's just the plain. I mean, why else would you start rumors and and create anonymous sources and try to dis, disrupt the you know the, the 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 outlook of an entire team? You know what I mean? For other for no other reason. Like, what would be your motivation? You always got to question why would they do that? Like, what is what's the reason? You know what I mean? So it, it, it has to be done intentionally. Quo bono. Who benefits? Right. Right. That 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 is really interesting. Hey, Atan Thomas, I really do appreciate the time you're taking for us, man. Would love to have you back on again. I know we do the collision together, and I know people can go to iTunes and uh, subscribe to that podcast as well. But I love having the chance just to interview you and talk to you directly about your thoughts. Thank you so much for taking the time. No, no, you know anytime. Anytime you want me to come on, Dave, all you got to do is ask. <laughs> so it's, it, this is great. Highly appreciated. Uh, be well, sir. And happy anniversary. Happy upcoming anniversary. Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. That was Etan Thomas. Follow him on Twitter. He's an amazing Twitter follow at Etan Thomas 36. We'll be back with Andy Schwartz's plan to remake the NCAA landscape right after this. 
And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. The spring books issue goes to press next week and the lineup is awesome. We got writers like Eric Foner, Steve Burt, Vivian Gornick, Jedediah Purdy, Adam Kirsch. It is a remarkable lineup of intellectuals who are going to be telling you the books that you absolutely should have on your table or tablet. Check it out. And of course, The Nation is the sponsor of this podcast. Please let them know that it is worth their while to continue. All you got to do is go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. Now on the line, an antitrust economist who studies the economics of college sports. In his spare time, he has concocted in the lab a radical plan to change the entire college sports industrial complex centered around historically black colleges and universities, Andy Schwartz. Andy Schwartz, how you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, very glad to have you. First, just to explain to us, I, I build you as somebody who has an idea to turn the NCAA on its head. So for, let's break it down for us in the most simplest terms. What is this idea, which I'm seeing being disseminated among some really smart people um, around the internet and on listservs and the like? What is this idea? Okay, well, you asked an economist to break it down really simply. That's hard. Um, at core, the idea is that I think that um, the claim that the lack of compensation doesn't drive demand for college sports and to the extent to which uh, various other methods, litigation, unionization, et cetera, don't let us have that test, then I think the only answer is to have a new league form. So you're talking about a new league uh, for NCAA, not even, even, it's even wrong to call it NCAA athletes, like, because they would be outside the NCAA. Well, I think that would be up to the NCAA. These would still be full-time college students attending accredited colleges. It's just that in addition to their scholarship, they would be employees of a sports league that was uh, paying them a salary. Hmm. Now, how did the idea for this initiative come about? Well, um, I was reading Jonas Sarah's and Ben Strauss's book called Indentured, where I'm a character in the book. I mean, a, a non-fictional character. And at the end, they were really bummed that um, we, the O'Bannon case that I, I worked on in part um, had gotten so far. And then at the last minute, a big chunk of the, the victory seemed to be snatched away when the Ninth Circuit said that while athletes could receive more money, that a that a, a real form of sort of post-graduation pay was not going to be allowed. And um, there's still litigation out there, and I work on some of it, and, and it may succeed in in effectively creating a market economy for athletes. But But the feeling that I got from the end of that book was that we may be at a spot where the asking for relief from government in one form or another, whether it's the Congress or, or the courts or the NLRB may not be an option. And what that leaves in, a, in an industry, if you're not going to get relief that way, the only thing that's left is market competition. So it's very difficult to imagine any school from any of the power five schools being into this idea because they would have everything to lose, even if their quote unquote student athletes would have everything to gain. So what schools would conceivably you guys target to be in this largely autonomous league that would compensate players? 
Um, well, so it's this is this is uh, where economics comes in. Economically, the NCAA is a cartel, and I got to be careful. The the word cartel in economics has nothing to do with drug cartels. It has to do with with independent companies or, or schools that get together to set prices. And that's what the NCAA does. They say how much an athlete can get paid. And sell drugs. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, no, whenever you have a, a group of, of firms with individual incentives that overlap, that they can form an agreement, there's always going to be tension. And there's always going to be a distribution of wealth that's somewhat different than if they were competing. And so the way that cartels typically break up is either the people who are making the most money are unhappy that they're subsidizing the smaller ones. And that's what we saw in the last few years with the Power Five threatening to leave the NCAA if they couldn't change the rules the way they wanted them. The other half, the other the other way that cartels break up is that the people at the bottom, the the getting the scraps of the redistribution people go, you know, I'm no better off here and I might be better off if I actually competed against the cartel. So a lot of times in a price fixing cartel, you might see a small firm just basically undercut the cartel and the cartel's like, look, you're too small for us to worry about. And that firm does better outside the cartel. So using that theory, I thought about, well, who is the low man on the totem pole? Who is getting the short end of the stick or any other, um, uh, cliche we want to use. And what jumped out to me were the historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs. These schools used to be sports powerhouses. And, and they were sports powerhouses because the, the rest of the schools, the predominantly white institutions, were segregated for the, for, or, or, or in total or in part. And they effectively tied one, one hand behind their back and said, we're not going to compete for for some of the best talent. We're only going to compete for some of the best talent. And they left the HBCUs this incredible recruiting pool. Well, so economically, the NCAA is sort of doing the same thing because just as a University of Texas in 1965 would not recruit a black athlete, in 2017, an NCAA school is not going to make a competing salary offer against a uh, this upstart league, if it if it were to come up to pass, and and recognize that I'm talking sort of theoretically, this is something that I would love to see. I'm 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 working to find people who can make it happen, but it it it's, it doesn't exist now. Mm. But the idea, I just want to. It always starts with the conception. So the conception would be that HBCUs would operate as an entity that actually compensated their players. And the idea would be that that could be the sort of thing that could um, draw some of the best talent to HBCUs and away from the Power Five conferences. Yeah, that is the fundamental um, the fundamental question about how this market works: is do people watch college basketball? And we're starting with basketball. Um, do people watch college basketball because they love to watch great talent compete for colleges? Which is which is my uh, theory, or do they feel that way, but only if there's a sort of enforced um, maximum earnings during that time in college, which I would say is a is a what the NCAA says that part of the appeal of college sports is that there's sort of an enforced under earning. You earn less than you're worth, and that that actually makes people want to come and watch it more, or what turn on the TV and watch it more. And I I just think that's false. 
literally the stupidest argument in sports because we already know that that was an argument that was laid down at the Olympics and obviously that is not proven to be true with Olympic athletes. So we know in practice that people don't derive extra interest from seeing athletes who also have trouble, you know, paying their rent. That does not that's not the sort of thing that they derive more enjoyment from. That's right. And it doesn't have to just be the Olympics. In the 19th century, baseball was amateur and it was it was announced that the gentlemanly nature of the game would go away if if people were paid to play baseball and therefore the fan appeal would disappear. Well, that was false. The golf majors used to all be amateurs and it was considered a gentlemanly thing, etc. Um, tennis until 1968, all the majors were, were, were amateur. Every single time there has been an assertion that the, the essence of the sport hinges on all the money flowing to the owners and not to the players um, made only by the owners, um, that argument, it's been disproven. And, and we can even look at, at what the NCAA said going into the O'Bannon case because when the O'Bannon case ended, the only real change financially that emerged was that the old cap that had been imposed for about 40 years, which limited um, compensation to athletes to uh, room and board, tuition and fees and required books, was changed so that they can now get a small paycheck, let's say three to five thousand dollars a year. In 2006 through 2008, there was litigation in which the NCA said if that happened, if even that small paycheck happened, that demand for the sport would decline, that the sport would no longer be amateur, etc. And when it did happen, I don't even know if your listeners even noticed, like at all, whether that the sport is any different now that athletes are getting paid a fixed small amount, but they're still getting paid. Right. There was this shift. And real quick word, I think most of my listeners are going to be familiar with what you're talking about when you say the O'Bannon case. If anybody isn't, go to edgeofsportspodcast.com and listen to the interview we did with Sonny Vaccaro, where we did a deep dive into the O'Bannon case. Okay, so quick question for you. Uh, you mentioned about basketball and starting with basketball. Of course, there are only two major revenue-producing sports, football and men's basketball. So why basketball? Why the choice of hoops? And the follow-up question is, where does women's basketball fit into this equation? Um, no, that's, those, are, those are both good questions. Uh, basketball is less profitable than football at the college level and in the pro level as well. But it also is less expensive. And um, so as a proof of concept and a launching point, it, it struck me as a simpler way to get started. It also involves smaller rosters. It, it also is a sport where a few stars can make a much bigger impact. And so the idea here is that um, the current McDonald's All-Americans that are out there will are being offered something of high value to go to college for one or more years, which is access to tremendous – you know, a tremendous positive thing in American society, which is a college education and, and to varying degrees, they're able to take advantage of that. Um, the HBCUs can offer that as well. And and that's really the college offer. The college offer is a full scholarship. Separately, there's this league concept and we're going to come in. The idea would be to come into the living room at the same time and say, to the extent to which you're accepted at, um, pick a school, Xavier of Louisiana. Um, and, you're, the coach wants you on the team, 
then we're going to hire you and pay you. And I'm making up a number, but this is in the ballpark, $75,000. And it's our hope that that's enough money in addition to all the other advantages of the HBCU to outbid Duke or Kentucky or or North Carolina, name the school. And then um, in basketball, if say there are 10 schools at the start, you know, ideally there'd be 30 or so when we're done, say there are 10 schools and 10 schools can get two really good, maybe future NBA draft picks. And if not that, then at least high end collegians on the team. That's enough to have a really interesting television product. Um, Facilities to have a basketball uh, game are, are less expensive to refurbish and make beautiful for a TV audience and make as a desirable place to go than football. So, so all of the startup costs are lower and the impact. Less overhead. Less overhead. What about, what about women's basketball? Where, do they fall, where would they fall into that at the HBCUs? Well, so one of the things that in my little project that we're working on is we're going to send a letter to the Department of Education because – as Title IX is written, what it says about money is that essentially whatever your male-female ratio uh, is with respect to participation, then financial aid, and that's the term it's used, financial aid has to be proportional. And I think Title IX is wonderful, and what I don't know is whether the third-party league paying a salary is considered financial aid by the Department of Education. If it is, then we as a league will – give to the school a matching amount and proportional to participation. So if the school is a 50-50 school, which uh, in terms of athlete participation, which is not that common, especially if a school has football, but we, if it is, we would give for every $75,000 we give a player, we would also give the school $75,000 and tell them, make sure that women's funding is increased. But it's really an open question whether Title IX applies to the salary above and beyond financially. The school's piece, clearly, they would need to match, and we would make sure that the compensation from the league made made that possible. The question is the above piece. When coaches' salaries were questioned under Title IX, and um, Marianne Stanley sued USC because George Raveling, who was the coach back then, was making a men's coach, was making a lot more than her, the court said, oh, no, you don't have to follow that, because men's and women's coaches' duties are really different. And that doesn't make any sense. What they were really saying was that, and the market price for those duties is really different. And unlike financial aid, which is set in some sense based on need, and that's maybe false for sports, but but true for need-based aid, unlike financial aid, salaries are market-driven and we're not trying to regulate the market. So I don't know whether what the Department of Education is going to say or whether they'll even answer us. Um, at some point, it will be. I'm hoping that the, it goes from hypothetical to real and, and we get to find out. But either way the finances of this league will be ready to comply with the law and also the the positive intent of of title 9 mm, interesting stuff all around any dialogue though i mean it seems to me just strictly from an organizing perspective if you approach the department of education with actual commitments from hbcus it becomes a much more powerful letter um any dialogue so far with the hbcus about this idea uh, minimal. Um, this 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 is sort of the the summer project is to get the missing pieces, and the big missing pieces are someone who wants to put the the games on the air or on the internet, and someone who wants to provide 
teams. So basically a network and schools. And like all startups uh, in a sports situation, there's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. If if today I had a network that really, really, really wanted to do this project, I don't think it would be that difficult to convince, convince at least – uh, a core of HBCUs. And I, I can tell you, like, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been talking to a lot of people who work at HBCUs, sports management people, um, and, you know, meetings are are in the works with the actual movers and shakers. But a big issue, especially for a public HBCU, is it's not clear how a legislature, say the North Carolina state legislature, is going to feel about a North Carolina public school HBCU taking University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, talent away from them through economic competition. Right, particularly through, I don't know about North Carolina, but particularly when there was that spasm of hysteria after the Northwestern players uh, tried to form a union where a lot of the the public state, where the state legislatures in a lot of several states uh, passed legislation saying that, that this would never be allowed in their state. And I don't even know the power of that legislation. I don't know how binding that is, frankly. Um, well, I mean, I think for all right, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to go too far out of my lane. My understanding is that state law governs public institutions within a state, so it's probably quite binding. Um, but first of all, note the irony that these are Republican legislatures, almost exclusively, that pass these laws, saying, in essence, we don't want to see people earning their keep, we would prefer to keep them basically on the dole. And um, that strikes me as crazy. But but I can see how a Republican, given their attitude towards union, could have a, a reflexive spasm of, of, of dislike for a union. My plan is, as proposed, is union independent. A union might emerge, but it doesn't have to. What it really is about is about good old American market capitalism. If you make a better mousetrap, the world will beat a, a path to your door. There shouldn't be, I would hope, any Republican concern with schools seeking to build a better consumer product called called HBCU basketball. And one thing that HBCU basketball has, that, um, that NCAA basketball, to the extent that which they separate, um, wouldn't have, is, is that we believe that you know, a fair wage for fair work makes sense. So, but, but the thing is, is you can say all that thing, but if it's, if I once had a lawyer say to me that, um, he would sue any school except Cal, cause that's where he went. So, um, you can have all your beliefs in the free market economy, but if it's going to hurt your beloved Tar Heels, you might take a different view. And so the threat is, that not just sports funding for HBCUs, but all funding for HBCUs might be in jeopardy. So the proof of concept may have to come through the private HBCUs. And, and I think that's where we're going to start, see if we can get um, enough to have some league content, find a – obviously, if ESPN came calling, I'm not going to say no, but I suspect that the 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 first and best source is a an Amazon or a Netflix somebody some sort of over the top new broadcaster that wants live sports content to enhance their product offering to find a shoe or apparel company that really wants to get early access to the future NBA stars right now um, a one and done athlete is basically in suspended animation they may know that they're going to be a Nike or an Adidas or a, an Under Armour athlete in a year. But all of that um, 
pre-work that you could be doing, think about sort of the the he's coming sort of advertisements we might see if athletes could could market their images in college. That's totally allowed in my world. And so I think we can get at least one, if not all of the apparel companies on board, at least one network. And then, yeah, then the plan would be to walk into the HBCUs and say, we want to throw a lot of money at you. And, and this is an important reason why I look at the HBCUs rather than say other low end schools that are, that are getting the short end of the stick, which is that the very founding mission of the HBCUs was in some sense to bring up an entire community, to uplift a community. And this is a way to change an industry that treats its labor inputs, which, you know, are in, in division one are predominantly black for basketball, men's basketball, and treats them as a, um, a non-partner in the process and to say, no, we're going to change it. We're going to change it at your schools. And, and either the other schools are going to, are going to refuse to compete and you're going to eat their lunch, or eventually they'll see the light sort of like eventually segregation dropped and they'll compete. And even if in that competition, the pecking order reserve reverts to the current way, you will have changed the world. Well, as I know you're well aware, segregation dropped only after a serious struggle. And this is another case where it will take a struggle for this to drop. I don't think it'll drop um, accidentally or just through the course of the free market because there's so many entrenched interests standing against it, which is why what you're doing, I think, is really important conceptually. Uh, Andy Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for letting me talk. And one last thing is, how can people keep up to date? Obviously, this is going to be an ongoing process. How can people keep up to date on what you're doing? Well, I'm on Twitter. I use the handle Andy, H-R-E, A-N-D-Y, H-R-E. Um, you can email me at Andy at OSKR.com. That's my company. This is not being done through my company, but I, I that's where I get my emails easiest. And... Um, at some point when we're ready, I'm sure we will come up with some sort of, of website and a place where if you want to get involved, we'll, we'll take, take things automatically. But in the meantime, just write to me, um, especially if you have a really rich uncle. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. Really do appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. And now I've got some choice words, and they are not so much about sports as they are about something that took place a mere 10 minutes from my house. The murder of Richard Collins III. Richard Collins III was about to graduate from Bowie State University. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. He was airborne certified. He was a son, a friend, and active in his church. To Sean Urbanski, a University of Maryland student, he was black. No more, no less. At around 3 a.m. on Saturday, May 20th, Collins was waiting for an Uber ride along with two friends who were students at UMD. Urbanski walked up to them and, according to witnesses, said, Step left, step left if you know what's best for you. Collins simply replied, No. He stood his ground. Urbanski then stabbed him in the chest and fled the scene, and Collins died at a local hospital. Look, make no mistake about it. This was a lynching, a lynching committed by a UMD student. Urbanski, as has been widely reported, is a member of a racist Facebook group called Alt-Reich Nation. 
But that's not all Sean Urbanski is. He's a college student who grew up in the leafy suburb of Severna Park, Maryland. He hung out at Stamp Student Union, studied at McKeldin Library, and wore his Baltimore Ravens gear around campus. He was not some kind of outsider. He is a homegrown terrorist who grew out of the soil of this college campus. The sooner that the administration and campus community reckons with that reality, the better. The UMD campus has seen racist chalkings, nooses, flyers, and threats since Donald Trump took office. And yes, one would have to be willingly obtuse to not see a direct line from having open white supremacists in the Oval Office to the emboldening of the perpetrators, not just at UMD, but according to NPR at campuses across the country. Collins' killing was caught on video and is already being investigated as a hate crime by the FBI. At a press conference, UMD police chief David Mitchell had an appropriately visceral reaction to what took place, saying emotionally, we are not going to tolerate any harm brought to our students. You're going to have to go through us. Not on my campus, not on my watch, end quote. Look, that's all well and good. But if this is going to end at UMD, it'll be because students, faculty, and campus workers say enough is enough. Not only to the hard right festering on campus, but to an administration led by President Wallace Lowe that has been all too content to look the other way. This is a fight that now needs to be joined. Every available resource needs to be mobilized. Pretending that the murder of Richard Collins III is somehow an isolated incident will only make the situation worse. We cannot depend on the FBI to do this for us as if the FBI is some kind of anti-racist battalion. Without a mobilization against all forms of white supremacist hate, more innocent blood will spill. And now just a quick word as well about why I think it's important definitionally and politically to call what happened to Richard Collins III a lynching. First and foremost, it's a misconception that lynching requires a rope. Lynching is defined as an extrajudicial murder with the intent of promoting terror. The most harrowing and well-known example of this, of course, is 15-year-old Emmett Till, who in 1955 was beaten to death and shot. In addition, one of the other characteristics that people say uh, has to be in a lynching is the idea of that there being a mob. But I would argue that a mob in the 21st century needs to be even thought of and conceived in a different way. I spoke to Dr. Rasul Moat, who studies the history and representation of lynchings and teaches it at Indiana University. And this is what he said to me. He said, the level of online communication among white nationalists, white separatists, and other far-right groups would support the idea that these online chat rooms, forums, discussion boards, and social media group pages are now the key locations for these sorts of actions to develop. Sean Urbanski belonged to one of these groups. It certainly qualifies. Look, this stabbing needs to be understood as part of a broad tradition of homegrown violence aimed at black and brown people as an instrument of terror. If we don't see Richard Collins III in the centuries-old continuum of lynchings, then we're helping whitewash what took place. We are choosing to categorize what happened as an aberration in the so-called post-racial 21st century United States. You hear this from politicians who mouth calorie-free phrases like, we are better than this, And this is not us. Well, we aren't. And it is. To say otherwise obscures the fact 
that this living tradition of violent white supremacy is currently being nurtured from the campus to cable news to the White House. This was a lynching. Acknowledging that is the first step towards confronting the homegrown terrorists and finally taking steps towards consigning this practice to the trash heap of history where it belongs. And now a quick word from the other podcast that's produced by the nation, the second best podcast produced by the nation, but I'll say this, it is a strong silver medal, and that is Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. It is politics without all the boring parts. Uh, John's show gets posted to thenation.com every Thursday morning. It's an absolute must-listen for me. He gets a total variety of interesting guests, the sharpest political thinkers, the sharpest political conversations. Start making sense. It's politics without the boring part. Subscribe to it as well on your podcast app of choice. And now's the part of the show where we do just stand up and just sit your ass down. Just Stand Up Award this week, I'm giving to Sam Mitchell, who people might remember as an NBA player and coach and somebody who is now a commentator, if you don't know, on the NBA Sirius channel, Sirius XM. Sam Mitchell is a smart dude, and he said something that I really want to share with everybody. I just really like this a lot. People might be aware that the Cleveland Cavaliers and Golden State Warriors are playing in the NBA Finals, and there has been a world of criticism that's been put down on players like LeBron James and Kevin Durant for effectively creating their own super teams, which have made the playoffs more than a little bit boring. I certainly agree with that last part about the playoffs broadly being a largely unwatchable inevitability of the Cavs-Warriors meeting in these finals. But something Sam Mitchell said was really smart. He said, the reason we didn't do this in his day was because, he said, and this is a quote, we were conditioned not to ask for anything. And then he celebrated the fact that younger players, this generation, are taking control of their own destiny, whether that's through prolonging their careers, going to management, and exercising their player power. What I love about this tape so much is that Sam Mitchell wasn't saying what so many people say, which is like, this generation of players is disrespecting the game, and their contracts are too big, and the league has become too SAR-centric, or whatever. What Sam Mitchell is saying is that the league has always been this way, but his generation was too afraid to ask. And I think that's such an important point that needs to be emphasized and re-emphasized. It also needs to be emphasized and re-emphasized that the NBA has always had super teams. You look at the Magic Lakers or the Celtics in the 1980s. You look at the Celtic teams, for goodness sakes, with Bill Russell that won 11 championships in 13 years. More often than not, super teams have been the reality in the NBA. So what's happening now is no different. The only difference is that it is players organizing these super teams and not management. And I honestly think that gets under a lot of people's skin because what you're talking about then is not just largely black bodies and entertainers who are making us ooh and ah with slam dunks, but you're talking about business people who are actually exercising autonomy over their work lives. I don't know if that can just be chalked up to racism, why people resent it so much. I don't know if that can be chalked up to people, you know, just 
being jealous of the fact that NBA players are exercising autonomy that maybe they don't have in their own lives. But I think the right response, at least politically, is to say, hey, if they are expressing their value to their bosses, maybe we should do the same. Actually take inspiration from that instead of being derisive towards it. Just a thought from me. That's all I was going to say about that. So that's your Just Stand Up. I appreciate Sam Mitchell for expanding the conversation. And the Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, who's announced that the 2019 All-Star Game will be back in Charlotte. Remember that Adam Silver, looking oh so serious, his hand pressed against his own chest, pulled the game from Charlotte this past year because of HB2, that's House Bill 2, which was a brutal statewide anti-LGBT legislation that sometimes is referred to as the bathroom bill because it legislates who can go into which bathroom targeting transgender people. But also, people forget this, that HB2 also made it illegal for any city or municipality in the state to pass any kind of anti-discrimination ordinance. Yes, the people of states' rights and Dixie and local control seized local control from every city in the state. And the NBA rightly took a stand and pulled their all-star game from the state of North Carolina. So what Silver's doing right now is celebrating the fact that officially HB2 is off the books. But guess what? Anti-LGBT legislation has replaced it, something called HB142, which makes it, guess what, illegal for any city or municipality to pass any kind of anti-discrimination legislation until 2020. That's the compromise. 2020 instead of 2018. It's unbelievable. At the very least, Silver should have said, yeah, we'll put the All-Star game there in 2021. But what's so crazy, too, is that everyone in North Carolina, from the Democrats in the North Carolina House to Republicans who are bragging about this replacement bill to, of course, LGBT organizations throughout the state are saying HB 142 is an absolute fraud. It is not a renunciation of HB 2. Everyone who's been following this issue knows this. Everyone, it seems, but Adam Silver. He has managed to make a decision that pisses everybody off except Michael Jordan, the owner of the Charlotte Hornets. And this is just so apropos for Adam Silver. Make a decision that's brave and then forget that you make it to appease owners like Michael Jordan. Now I got a question for all our listeners. First and foremost, you can call us on the Edge of Sports hotline about any issue. 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. My question for you, quite simple. What do you think of Andy Schwartz's proposal? Do you think that could actually work? Do you think it could crack the NCAA? Do you think it's even a little bit realistic? We want to hear back from you. Push back on us if you think this is an absolute shamocracy of a sham. Let us know here at the Edge of Sports Podcast, 401-426-3343. Well, that's all we have for this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast. You can always 
Listen to back episodes at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Thank you to David Tigaboo, who's riding solo this week as producer. Shout out to Dan Baker, who's somewhere out there in the universe. Peace to all our listeners. Please remember, go to iTunes, leave some sort of rating, leave some sort of message. It makes a huge difference for the growth of the show. Next week, we're going to have a best of Edge of Sports podcast because I'm going to be out working with Michael Bennett on this book that we're going to try to do together. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.